Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, host of the Black Hall Studios podcast from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm an entrepreneur, mostly by necessity because I have massive authority issues, and also by constitution as the entrepreneurial life is filled with things I love, freedom, adventure, creativity, and imagination. When I began this leg of my journey into the entertainment industry, you may find it interesting to know that my background before this was all commercial real estate. And then I built Black Hall Studios as a specialty real estate project for production giants like Disney, Sony, Warner Brothers, and Universal to have a place to apply their skilled craft of production. I'm from Los Angeles, but I moved to Atlanta six years ago. I've done business all over the world, and I know a few places with the dynamism of Atlanta. It's a world-class city with a huge economic future as a center of commerce for a global economy. On this podcast, we get local and global and talk to people who are inspirational, sensational, sometimes motivational, but at all times somehow tied to the ecosystem that is the culture and business of entertainment as it relates to Black Hall Studios. Today, I'm in conversation with two amazing entertainment industry veterans. First up is Mark Wofford. Mark runs PC&E, Production Consultants and Equipment. This employee-owned company serves all productions happening in Georgia, from film to TV to advertising. Some PC&E projects that you've probably heard of, Stranger Things, The Walking Dead, The Resident, Legacies, The Avengers. Mark Wofford is a chill dude, and I say that because film production is not a chill business, but having a calm, organized approach is the key to his success. And in the time of the coronavirus, with the tough business decisions being made, Mark is a pro. If you're coming to Atlanta to film, first, you need to film at Black Hall Studios, and second, you need to work with PC&E, the all-knowing, all-problem-solving savant, Mark Wofford. Hey, guys. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. We're doing it all remote, and I know it's it's been a, a really fascinating, bizarre 10 days in the entertainment industry. Mark, how are you guys holding up? Uh, we're hanging in there. I mean, clearly, like you said, the past 10 days, pretty much all the jobs stopped uh, at once. All the shows that had our dollies out shut down and returned the dollies. Uh, last week, we were fortunate enough to have a couple of jobs scheduled in the stages, uh, commercials that were one or two day shoots that were able to, to shoot, uh, and finish their work. A lot of stuff got not canceled so much as just postponed by the client and pushed forward to a, hopefully to a, a, a later date. And we were working with customers, you know, if, if they were going to be in the stage and a shoot canceled, we charge them a minimum amount of money as a cancellation. And then we're going to apply that to the job when it comes back as a credit. So it's not going to cost them anymore because it, it wasn't their fault. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that. But, you know, you guys obviously are in a difficult position from a revenue standpoint, along with a lot of small businesses. 
if you would, I mean, share what share what you guys are thinking, how you're approaching this. You know, whether or not you'll be, you know, seeking out some of the SBA loans that um, the federal government is, I think, passing today. They're trying to anyway. What, what are you guys thinking, yeah, and, but- and how are you handling? I think there's probably a lot of people listening who are in a similar position and trying to figure out what to do next. Well, as a company, we have about 30 employees. Uh, we've always been uh, fairly conservative financially, so at least we have a, a decent amount of uh, you know cash on hand, so it's not a an immediate emergency like a lot of smaller companies. I have friends and rental house businesses across the country, and some of them are already devastated because I think so many small businesses operate at such a narrow margin that any break in revenue can be devastating. Well, particularly a 30, 60, 90-day break in web revenue oh, yeah. is just it's unsustainable it's a for the majority of business. No, absolutely. And that's why I've been monitoring closely the Family First Act, which passed last week, had a lot of potential benefits for employees and small businesses. The uh, the Senate voted last night and approved their bill, which I just downloaded the full 880-page text to share it with our board and a few of the other people here. And I'm sure we're going to be digging into that all day long to see there's some opportunities out there for companies. Because I our goal is to try to keep the business viable, obviously, as long as possible and keep the employees employed because at some point the work's going to come back and it's either going to come back slowly and start building or it's going to come back quickly. And we need to be in a position to be able to to serve the needs of our customers because that's also a major concern is so many of the businesses that we service depend on us for the success of their business too. So it's such a interconnected web it's, uh, and it's fragile. So it's a, it's a day-by-day thing. You know, we're looking ahead, planning out scenarios like, okay, what if, what if, what if, but just kind of seeing it unfold day by day. Well, the, you know, the entertainment industry, I think, is going to come back really hard and really fast. I mean, if you look at what's happened in the last 10 days with Netflix subscriptions, which have just shot up, uh, Disney Plus subscriptions, which have just shot up, um, I know... Um, that um, Showtime has had a huge bump in their online subscriptions. And so what's happening is people are bored and they're, they're seeking out online entertainment. But that pipeline, which is now being consumed, is not being refilled. And so Correct. everything that I'm hearing is that on the other side of normal, that there will be even greater uh, need for supply which is the you know, creation of entertainment. Yeah. That's the thing about our business, and, and I would say our business, the, the entertainment business. Uh, there's so many small businesses that can never recover the work that has been lost at this time. You know, if you're a dry cleaner, it's not like people are stockpiling their clothes and are going to bring them all in and have more clothes to dry clean. The, there's not, you can't make up certain business. But like you said, with the creation of content, there's so many creators. There are so many crew members willing to work. There's so much equipment available. It's it's going to be a wave, I think, that'll that'll crash over everyone. So that that's kind of different about our business, I think, that what we all do and how we are uh, fortunate in that regard. 
compared to the losses that so many people are suffering. Yeah, I mean, the the immediate, obviously, is very bizarre because the entertainment industry, the, the creation of entertainment, the making, the manufacturing of entertainment is not something that can be done remotely, right? You can't gather actors and actresses and directors and producers online and somehow get them to create quality content. You can do funny stuff like what Jimmy Fallon's doing uh, live from his house. And I mean, there's things oh, that yeah. it's not like you could, you know, that we're not doing nothing, but at the same time, the quality content, people need to be in the same place. We're not making widgets with robots. We're making high quality human content that requires a, a high level of in, intuition, emotional engagement, um, creativity, uh, communal thinking, um, on the spot, uh, instinctual moves that you just can't replicate uh, from a distance. So, you know, people need to be together to come up with that kind of creativity. You know, the other thing I'm hearing, Mark, is that uh, people that are make that have been making content overseas are rethinking that, especially the stuff that's outside of English speaking countries. So, you know, I think London is, you know, would be considered maybe less quote overseas but all the stuff that's taking place in europe and eastern europe a lot of those people at least what i'm hearing are rethinking that position and imagining that on the other side of this ship being righted that they would try to bring those productions back to the united states are you hearing similar things um i i have not you know so much of what we do is on the commercial world anyway it's hard for us to to gauge some of that that bigger on the, the, the long content, you know, the, the long form kind of content, because we're not able, we're not a, a major player in those regards. So I'm just, I, you know, it's clear from watching everything that everyone's doing, you know, how many musicians are posting live performances and people are, people need art more than ever at this time. No, no, I see that. What, what kind of things have you seen? So in this, in this time at home, are you enjoying it? I mean, what's what's kind of been your posture? Let's set aside the pandemic. The reason I ask this is I've actually been like loving my new lifestyle. It's unbelievable. Now, that's setting aside the pandemic and the possibility of economic collapse. But assuming we're not going to have a Great Depression and assuming we're all not going to have you know a, a terrible experience with uh, with virus, I've been just absolutely loving this quality of life at home. My day-to-day hasn't changed significantly. I've worked, you know, other than on the weekends, uh, every day in the office for the past two weeks. You know, I'm, I've come in every day this week. Uh, our controller has come in. Our kind of accounting department have been here. Uh, so for that, in that regard, what I'm responsible for doing every day hasn't changed that much. You know, I kind of feel greater responsibility because more so than ever the responsibility of looking after the the 30 people that work here and feeling responsible for them uh, weighs on my mind. It's just, you know, I see fewer people, so I'm making sure that I walk outside and kind of get the fresh air and take care of myself and do a walk. And like last night I went over when I got home and my neighbor and I sat in his driveway at a safe distance and, uh, enjoyed a cold drink and a good conversation. You know, my, my wife and daughter, she's my daughter's a recent college graduate who 
was fortunate to find a job that she's able to work from home at now. So they're both working from home in different areas of the house, you know, so they're trying to make sure that they focus on what they need to do and also on themselves and take some time to, you know, take care of the soul, if you will. It's It's been strange. You know, traffic this morning was remarkable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to go actually into town yesterday to meet um, a reporter to talk about, you know, what's going on economically and what's going on in the entertainment industry. And, and we had to meet at Black Hall and the freeway was just completely empty. Unbelievable. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, Black Hall is a ghost town right now. So it's, it's such a weird uh, environment to drive into a place that on a busy day, we might have a thousand bodies running around, creating content, doing cool stuff. The place buzzes with activity. There's, you know, hundreds of semi trucks, equipment everywhere. Um, you, you go into stages and they just have, they're alive with energy. Guys are building sets, you know, people are filming, whatever. And right now it's just crickets, absolute emptiness. Um, it reminded me actually of times before we actually opened when I, you know, when I was building Black Hall and I would walk around. I remember like two months before our first production and we were scrambling to get finished, but we, but the place was, you know, substantially complete. There were a lot of details that had to be, you know, worked out, but it was substantially complete. And I remember walking around this gigantic facility, empty, gigantic facility, thinking to myself, am I absolutely nuts that I just built a movie <laughs> studio in Georgia? And then I just thought, you know, we're going to find out. We're going to find out. And so uh, it, it was, it, you know, then we opened and we haven't been empty really at all in over three years. And uh, and so to, to go back and be able to walk around the place empty, even though it's a weird time, it was very nostalgic uh, for me because yeah. it's been a long three years. I mean, it, it, we've, we've accomplished so much so fast that three years has felt like a decade. Um but it's you know it, it, the, what what made me think of that is is you're talking about the care of the soul and this time that really is like a time of reflection and you know I've I've been thinking about how much um, our society would benefit if every year and, and this may, may sound crazy but imagine if every year we all took a month off where just like we just agreed that we we're going to shut society down. I guess the Europeans kind of do this in the summer, but you know, but we've never really had anything like this. But imagine if every April, just right here we are, like coming up on April. Imagine if every April our society said, "Listen, we're going to all pay each other to shut our lives down. It's going to be national debt, um, and we're going to just take on a month of of uh, of, of inactivity in order to care for our souls." I think we'd be a better society if we did stuff like that. Are you experiencing that? Yeah. I mean, it I would, sounds I would, like your, your daughter so. is your wife. Yeah. I mean, that's so, and I, I've always been, I don't do a lot of my personal, you know, social media, Facebook, but I've always tried to share music with people that I find, uh, meaningful because that's one of the things that, that touches me is, uh, is music and seeing a singer songwriter or a band or hearing a piece of music. Uh, not that I have any musical talent whatsoever. I'm a, I'm an excellent listener. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a really good fan. Other than that, I can't play anything. I should never be allowed to sing anything. So 
And it's, those are good. It's like, this is what touches, you know, this is what, this is what touches me. Hopefully it'll touch you and, and force. I think people are being forced to be reflective. And some people are, I think, doing a good job at that and doing it well. And really, like you said, you know, like they're taking care of themselves. Some people, I don't think you will ever learn the lesson of taking care of themselves, you know, and that's, that's sad. It's, it's sad for them and it's sad for us as a whole in that regard. But, um, it's just, it's amazing. You know, just let's take a step back and talk a little bit about this. Like tell us, tell the people who are listening about your, you know, career arc and some of your, you know, soul journey in that. And, you know, share with us kind of the background that got you to this place where you're, you know, running an equipment company in Georgia. Yeah. Well, yeah, well I'm a, Georgia native, born and raised, uh, grew up in a small town in northwest Georgia, a little town called Menlo, uh, up in Chattooga County. Went to a public high school, graduated, went to the University of Georgia. At that time, uh, early 80s, I, I, wanted, I thought I wanted to be a director. You know, I wanted to be the next Steven Spielberg at that point. And uh, George, in the University of Georgia, didn't have a, 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 a deep film program. I think we had one class where I actually shot with film cameras. That's what I wanted to do and took a playwriting class, met my now wife in that class. We've been together, you know, now 32 years. Started trying to freelance. I wanted to freelance. I wanted to work in production. Knew, knew not a person in Atlanta and just tried to start meeting people and eventually found a job as a production assistant, worked as a production assistant, met someone who needed a production coordinator, met someone who needed a second AD, uh, assistant director. Is this in the 90s? Uh, this was in the early 90s, yeah. Uh, commercials have always yeah. been healthy here, a great commercial market. So I freelanced in production. I was uh, I was trained as an assistant director uh, by a gentleman named Jerry Peace, who is, I think, the best ever, uh, not only in terms of being a, a first AD, but in terms of being a good human being. So he trained me as a, an assistant director. I'd freelance for 12 years. My wife and I had a couple of kids, and having a 12-hour day be like a reasonable day and being a good day, it just, you know, being coming home after a 12-hour day and going, wow, we only work 12 hours a day uh, today was beginning to wear on me, especially with young kids. So I took a staff position at the film lab in town, in town called Cinefilm, was the motion picture lab at the time, uh, was sales slash customer service not a great salesman uh, i realized but uh it was good i and i didn't realize at that time how much film came from all over the country into atlanta for processing and then was shipped out for transfer uh, worked there for six years uh, and then had an opportunity to uh, come to pc and e who when i was in production and rented equipment for companies from la as a production coordinator, PC&E was the company that I would call. They were my, my go-to source. Uh, Doug Smith, the founder of the company, needed someone who could come in and kind of move up through the ranks and someone who could look after the business because he was transitioning out of the day-to-day operations. So I had a chance to, to come here, which was great because it was like a homecoming. This was like always my favorite place anyway. And it always had a great reputation. It always was like the hometown, kind of uh, the community center, one of my friends described it as, uh, for the industry in Atlanta. 
and so many people that now work in the industry had come through here. So I, I started working here, and that was uh, will be 15 years ago this this fall. Just worked as you know alongside everyone. I had knowledge of production from being an AD. I had knowledge of post production from uh, working at the film lab, and I knew a little bit about a lot of stuff. Uh, so I was able to kind of connect with our customers and understand why they had issues that they had and then try to relay to them how it worked from our side and understand how it worked from their side. And hopefully people that knew me from freelancing trusted that I was, uh, you know, had their best interest at heart and then trying to represent the needs of the company, which, you know, you find out just amazing things once you actually are inside a company, like how hard it is for people to, to do what we do on a daily basis and how hard everyone works to make every single job for every client be the best possible. Well, I know how passionate you are about Georgians in entertainment. You know, what percentage of the people that, that you're working with every day do you think are are Georgians today, right? I mean, that's always a big question in the entertainment industry in Georgia. Um, yeah. And and how do you imagine the future? Like let, let's let's set aside the pandemic and let's set aside whatever economic consequences. Let's just imagine that the world was was continuing on the on the incredible tra- trajectory we'd been on. Talk to me about uh, Georgians and entertainment and how you're imagining the future looks here in Georgia. Well, you know the the reason I think we were able to capitalize on the success of the incentives in a large portion were. Uh, the the deep crew base that we had, and we always had a we've always had a great crew base. You know, base uh, back in the late '80s, early '90s, all those a lot of the films that either came here or were being filmed elsewhere. There's a lot of crew members that had to leave here to go work on those films. You know, long time people in the camera department, grips, electricians, costume, whatever. You know, so they were all able to come back to this market. So. We've always had a really healthy appetite for hard work, I think, and doing a job well. And that's enabled us to create this amazing, you know, infrastructure that has worked so well. So then, you know, just looking ahead like, okay, you know, all bets are off. We're not thinking about everything that's happening right now. Let's just say we're able to continue forward. I think we're poised to start fostering that generation of the of the creatives better than we have ever been before in the past because you know up until recently if you i think if you wanted to be a filmmaker or a writer or a director you you had this desire that you needed to go elsewhere to to do it and to to get the experience and now you know with the masters of fine arts program that's going to be introduced at uga in partnership with pinewood uh what's happening down at, you know, Pinewood, what, what you and I have had conversations about what, you know, you want to do. And just, I have friends that teach high school and teach high school filmmakers and just the caliber of work that those kids are doing. It gives me hope. You know, we, this is going to continue on. We're going to continue to provide great service for, for Hollywood. And then we're also going to be able to provide that same great service for, for Georgians. And then it's not just going to be people who grew up in Georgia and have gone to Georgia schools. It's going to be like, hopefully people will start, you know, 
moving to Atlanta. People are, you know, we're a we're a gaming, you know, mecca for a, for a lot of companies. And there, you know, I think hopefully we'll start doing that. We've always been a, a great hotbed of uh, the music industry. So it's like, why, you know, it's just to me, it's logical. We're going to start enabling content creators on the visual side those same opportunities. So let's imagine I can hand you a magic wand and I say, you can wave this magic wand and make the entertainment industry into whatever it is you dream over the next five years inside of Georgia. Now it has to be, we're going to put some restriction. You can't have trillions of dollars unless you can get that written into the, um, uh, <laughs> the economic stimulus plan that's being passed. But let's say you have, you know, reasonable, reasonable expectations. Paint me a picture of what you'd hope to see five years from now in the entertainment industry in Georgia. Five years from now, I would, uh, the commercial market being well recognized as the, uh, the long form, uh, more of that, more films, more studio spaces, and more accessible space for not just the, the blockbuster film or the, the, the films that get the attention of, of everyone, you know, the big, the big major tent poles, but, you know, mid-size or independent filmmakers having access to, to good technology, good studios, you know, smaller films, medium-sized films around the state and being, but then also there being a, a large element of it being self-sustaining so that, you know, independent filmmakers, writers or have a mechanism by which they can get experience they can have a work produced, they can have it created, it can be released, it can be Georgia investors. People will recognize the value uh, from a financial standpoint of what we do, what we all do, and turn that around. You know, and our and, and for us, our business to continue to grow, we're always looking at other opportunities. In the past couple of years, we acquired a, a smaller lighting and grip company for me and the other employee owners of the company, since that's what we consider ourselves, since we're an ESOP, we're employee owned, we're always looking at ways to grow the business, not just more of the same, not just a bigger inventory of the latest equipment, but something different, something new. Hopefully, you know, we would be able to do that. We'd be able to, to grow and need more studios because there's so much commercial work being done. I and love that. Discounts. Well, we you know, smaller. we're running out of time, but you know, in this in this time of social distancing everybody being at home, obviously social media is even more important than ever and people keeping uh, connected. I know you said that historically you haven't had social media. Do you have any uh, Instagram? How can people find you if they want to hunt you down online? Well, uh, we we are on a we have a Facebook page. We are actually a uh, working on coming up with some short videos that we would be able to post on our Facebook page uh, so that people can, you know, like, what's a dolly? How do you use a dolly? Or what do you have in sales and expendables? What are sales? You know, all these different kind of scenarios. Talking about our new uh, Bolt X, uh, at the beginning of the year, we took possession, uh, ownership of the first high-speed uh, Cinebot called the Bolt X east of the Rockies, there's only one other robot like it, and it's in L.A., and the one that we have is on track, which is the only one on track in North America, and it's an exciting possibility for us. It's a whole, it's a brand new piece of equipment and opens us up to a whole new line of work that 
we look forward to continuing once we get past all of this that we're going through now. And there's a lot of opportunity on the horizon. And uh, I look forward to to being there and all of us being there to uh, to see where it takes us. Well, good. Hey, Mark, thanks for being on the program today. Good luck with everything you guys are doing. Hang in there in this in this weird time. I know we're going to come out all stronger on the other side. All right. Stay well. Yeah, you too. And thank you. I appreciate it. Good talking to you again. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. On to the second half of the cast. Again, I'm Ryan Millsap of Black Hall Studios. Thank you so much for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Now I get to have an amazing, pumped-up conversation with a woman you could absolutely call the queen of Atlanta hip-hop. She's a legend. LaRonda Sutton's roots in music go back to the early 80s in Los Angeles, where she was hired and mentored by music's iconic Mr. L.A. Reid. Unbelievably, in this podcast, LaRonda tries to gloss over her signing of the groundbreaking band Destiny's Child like it's no big deal when Beyonce was just one of the girls on a little band, and how she signed Oscar winner Jamie Foxx way before his Oscar, as well as discovering the then-unknown high school talent Outkast. LaRonda nurtured and promoted other killer bands that helped lay the foundation for the glistening, modern production houses that live in this city in the South. LaRonda Sutton is someone you should know, and you will. Thanks for listening. This is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Rhonda, welcome. Thank you so much, Ryan. I, I'm happy to be here. It's a great time, and thank you. Well, I appreciate you, you doing this while we're all quarantined. It's kind of a fun outlet to be able to have conversations like this in the midst of being holed up alone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm doing pretty well. I'm here at home. My daughter is grown, Naomi, and so she's at her place, also in Atlanta, so, you know, every now and then she'll come and visit, but I'm like, you know, you're younger. You might want to stay away a little bit. Wash your hands when you walk through the door. Who are you hanging around? You know, but other than that, that's kind of with, with COVID-19 and all that's going on and really kind of strange and stressful times, I never would have thought about doing this type of thing, this podcast type of thing. I work from home anyway, but to have everyone else on the same page it has been kind of like just really different, really kind of surreal. You know, you learn something new and that's what's happening for me. I'm learning new things every day, especially about Zoom conferencing and all types of stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, Zoom has become something that all of us are learning about. All, all of these new technologies about how we're going to stay connected from a distance. This is kind of a side note, but mm-hmm. I'm really fascinated to see in the entrepreneurial world what comes out of this from a disease fighting standpoint in all our homes like what are the next luxury items is there going to be a pandemic machine that is that that people pay to have in their house a a ventilator right Right. and 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 or whatever other things that then become part of this pandemic machine or this pandemic room and then how is the air handling going to change in our offices and our in our homes are we going to now all have uh, pay much more attention to air filtration that fights disease and virus and airborne illness, et cetera. I think there's going to be an entire industry that's kind of a biotech technology industry that emerges in a much bigger way on the backside of this. And I think, uh, you know, our lives are going to change in many ways. And, and some of the things that we buy are going to change in, in many ways. We're, we're right now at the studio working on a protocol similar to 9-11 airports. 
that had to develop right. an entire new protocol for yes. uh, security. We're developing mm-hmm. an entirely new protocol for health, right? Because now our well, workplace yeah. suddenly has become a place where people are concerned about who are they working around. It's no different than you talking to your daughter, right? I mean, how, what a weird world. <laughs> yes, I mean, it, it is. And to have to implement that because she's out and about. And just to know that, you know, Ryan, what you said, like, our lives will be changed even down some of the smallest things. I think about even new fashion. As I look on Instagram and I see what's going on, like, the new mask and and new clothing and how people want to dress in the midst of this when they're going out. What is the new kind of work uniform? What is the new uniform? Am I going to have to wear a mask every day? What is that? No, but those 1920s gloves to your elbow might suddenly be back in fashion <laughs> right. before we know it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right? I remember those because I used to have to wear those to church. Just I mean, that stuff might be coming back, right? Because I was at um, Home Depot the other day, and there was a guy in front of me, and he was wearing full-blown goggles and, like, an aeration mask that was yes. as if he would, was, was uh, spray-painting a, ha- a car inside a small room. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah. met, so now the, what are the fashion versions of this kind of wear going to be? Yeah. I, I love yeah. this. And, I think- and there was uh, a show filmed in Atlanta on HBO with Regina King. It's a futuristic show. Right. And so when you look at it, you see really what we're evolving into, because that's what I believe that the you know, media and television and, and film does for us. They kind of forecast, they introduce ideas to us that we look at as entertainment, but really at some point there's a possibility that these things could exist, right? And so The Watchmen, that's, that's what the, the name of the mm. show was when I watched it. Mm-hmm. The police are in full-on masks. That's how they move through there every day. Just a sign of the times that, that now... You know, when you watch that, it doesn't seem so foreign. On that point, I read an article just the other day. It was it, it was an article I read in a military news. The military right mm-hmm. now is so much a part of our life because they're trying to figure out how to deploy <laughs> forces to help us with all of this viral containment. Right. But so I, mm-hmm. I got this I got this notice, and it was about how in New York, I think it was 550 police officers who have corona. Oh. Yeah. And so you start to realize yeah. like, there's all these people, the, the, the police officers, the, the nurses, the doctors that are on the mm-hmm. front line mm-hmm. of this real life. I mean, it's like a war going on. It is. And it's a it war is. against really an unseen war. foe, right? Yeah. That, that yes. we don't even understand like all of the power of the enemy. And it's like we got yes. suddenly attacked and we're just trying to <laughs> gather enough information to even know like what to do next. And, and it's easy for us who are quarantined to forget that the people on the front line, they are fighting a real war that has real consequences. Uh, right. I'll give you another example about that is that a buddy of mine is an ER doctor, and he's 62 mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. And he's, down, he's been down in Florida quarantined, but he's like, listen, I'm coming back to Atlanta, and I'm going to mm-hmm. have to go uh, do ER work at Grady because they're running out of body. Mm-hmm. And the reality mm-hmm. is 100% I'm going to get sick. That's just yeah. there's no chance that I'm not getting sick, and he's right. going to go walk into that war zone knowing that on the front line that's going to happen, and that kind of heroism in the midst of this, I think it's it's easy to forget because it, it is. this is not it a is. joke out there. And then you think about okay, because usually when we go through things like this, what is the knee jerk reaction to this coming out? And like you said, that a part of that is the is the innovation, but 
The other side of it is, should our policemen be wearing masks from here on out? What are the new protocols for just moving forward, like you said, in your home and working with folks? And so I think working from home is going to be the new way. I, I think once people realize that it can happen, I think it's going to be a lot more of that. Do you think any of us, maybe we had some friends who were germaphobes, I'm definitely, I haven't been a germaphobe in my I, life, right? But, but who, I, I am who a little have, bit. You are a little bit. So, like, before this, did you venture out into the world and feel like, all right, I'm going to go out and see people. I'm going to be in open space. There's all kinds of craziness out there. I, I got to really be, well, I got I, I to get ready know, to prepare myself. I started in my trek with this whole kind of dealing with a lot of people because I used to go see a lot of shows. Right. And always attend a lot of conferences, being in being in the music business and being in entertainment. And so I just had a thing about being around a lot of people anyway. That was just because in Los you loved Angeles. Or you didn't like yeah, it. What do you mean? Which... I did not love it I, for okay. a couple of reasons. <laughs> I did not love it, even though I love I love my job. I love what I did. But I did not love being around a lot of people like that, because growing up, you know, in California and being in L.A. in the early 90s, people would get together, a lot of crowds, someone would act stupid. And next thing you know, you have a stampede, right? And you're there for music. People are drinking. So you, it would be a stampede. So just, just for that reason alone, I didn't like big crowds because you just never know what could happen. And also traveling a lot. So I started using this stuff. And all my friends thought I was crazy. They were like, Ronda, I can't believe you. You're such a nightmare. But it was from Dr. Schultz, who's in Culver City in Los Angeles. He made this elixir called Air Detox, right? So when, right. Whenever, whenever I was around people, I would He also makes that Detox. really amazing green, that green juice, like mixture, you know, the, yes. the Dr. Schultz, yes. like algae mixes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I would, use the, I would use the Air Detox. Like, you know, I'm traveling. Oh. I'm spraying my area on the plane. I'm wiping it down. You know, I'm at the basketball game and the kid behind me with the runny nose. You know, I'm going to spray the air detox around me. So 30 <laughs> days ago, people would have laughed at you. Right. And now you, right. you might become the new normal. Now everybody's like, wait, I, wait, has this plane been aerosoled? Has, has this plane been <laughs> fumigated? Right. What, yeah, what, exactly. what are going to be the new protocols for getting on an airplane? I, I, was, I was talking to some guys recently who were trying to help develop this technology for Tyler Perry. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, Tyler is sensitive to germs. Mm -hmm. I don't know at what, what mm -hmm. level, but, you know, what has some, some sensitivity <laughs> right. there. And so he, he, you know, is like exploring, trying to figure out how do I fumigate the spaces mm -hmm. before I show up so that I know that this has been detoxed and there are no viral bacterial right. of any sort, right? And so who's going to be the yes. next billionaire who invents that, who really solves yes. that? Like, can I roll in some type of air detox bomb and airs out everything, the fumes come out of it and, or whatever it is and cleans up everything and you're good. Kill the, you know, uh, from a germ perspective, I can imagine. I was talking to a buddy of mine about this. He was in New York and he said mm -hmm. the first guy who comes up with a, a way to fumigate a cab in between mm -hmm. rides. Right. He's going to kill it. Right. Because right. He, he said Uber, Cabs, Uber, Uber almost put taxis. At, he, well, he said Uber almost put taxis out of business. If, if taxis can solve that, they'll put Uber out of business. Right. The swings are wild. The, the psychological swings. The world has no more or less actual danger, right? Because there's, mm -hmm, there's always mm -hmm. been plague 
in the history mm-hmm. of humanity. Um, mm-hmm. But right now, where this is going to be a generation of kids and everybody, mm-hmm. that, that this is going to mark our mm-hmm. lives the way September 11th marked our lives. Absolutely. And I remember there was a photo or there was a clip of when President Bush was out shaking hands and he asked for the hand sanitizer and he started wiping his hands. And the world was like, oh, my God, I can't believe he did that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. On the news, it was just a huge pushback. They made him out to be, they kind of villainized him because he was a germaphobe like a lot of us are today, right now. (laughs) This is the time for for two people. It's for the people that were preppers. Mm-hmm. Right, who were like preparing for the possibility of of needing to live in their homes for thirty to sixty to ninety to one hundred and eighty to whatever, but they they've got mm-hmm. food for a year and water for a year. This is the time of the prepper. <laughs> They're all like, "See, I knew it, I knew right, it." Exactly. Right, and this <laughs> yeah. is also the time of the hypochondriac. Right, I knew right. it. Right, so they they're getting now. We we all know that a a dead clock is still right twice a day. So, you know, it's not necessarily that they were so prescient, but they are living in a moment in time where they feel really, really justified for all the things that they've they've done to this point. And and they are going to have their way of life is going to have an impact or the rest of society is going to shift closer toward their way of life going forward. Let's let's take a step back. Right. So I want to hear a bit about your journey in the entertainment business and the music business. And some mm-hmm. of the early stuff that, that really impacted you, when you knew this mm-hmm. was going to be like a career for you, like you're like, I, I love this mm-hmm. business. And just t- share with us some of that journey that got you to this place today. It's so funny because just kind of talking to uh, your producers and the people that you work with, I kind of let them know that uh, Sarah Port, I let them know that I feel the entertainment business found me and that my trek has been amazing thus far. And it's like having a, your, your, just your own fingerprint. I, I couldn't say to anyone the same thing could, could happen to you. You could go down this path. I was born in Kansas. I um, was raised in Northern California. I went to college at Wichita State University. And I knew I never wanted to work a traditional job. I knew I wanted to travel. And I knew I wanted to meet people. I had an aunt who was, it's always kind of like you have a relative. I had an aunt who was in the entertainment business. She was Sammy Davis Jr.'s personal secretary. And she did that for a very long time. And so she would fly in to visit us in the Bay Area from Los Angeles. And she just was magnificent. That's, that's the only word I can use to describe her because when I would see her, it was big hair and fabulous glasses and amazing fashion. And just, I would look at her and i said, well, whatever that is, I want that. And so I started my first industry drop, 1988, as an assistant to a guy by the name of Jay King, who managed a group called Club Nouveau. And I also went to high school with the lead singer of the band. He was based in Sacramento, California. And that Wait, was, did you that grow up in Sacramento? Of, I grew up in a little town called Vallejo, uh, California. Yes, yes. And so Sacramento was not that far. Sacramento, Fairfield, you know, Vallejo. Yep. It's like, it's, you know, it's like the Trinity. You run, you know, once you cross the Carquinez Bridge, you're, that's your trek, right? Heading north. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so when you pass UC Davis, you know, go a little bit out of the way, about 15 minutes out of the way, you end up in Napa. So that's where I grew up. And so 
Well, a little um, a little known fact, I spent two years of high school in a little town in the San Joaquin Valley called Mantica. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I know Mantica. Yeah. <laughs> I know Mantica, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I actually just recently reconnected with buddies of mine from high school in Manteca that I hadn't talked to in 25 years. Oh, my goodness. And don't uh-huh. you kind of love when that happens, when you get to talk to folks from a long time ago, and, like, did they turn out the way you thought they would? I, I mean, kind of like exactly like I thought they would. There, you know, there, okay. <laughs> there, you know, there, there was, like, seven of us that ran around mm-hmm. together, and mm-hmm. three – of us left and three stayed and one, nobody knows where he went, you know, so he must've left, okay. but, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. but um, it was fascinating to see like the difference between, well, you know, the lives of the people that went out and about and then the lives right. of people that stayed close and the lives of people that stayed close, like they're intricate, uh, important members of their community. Of in that their small, community. In that small town. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah and they know everyone that's kind of the same way for um Vallejo for me I knew that I'm gonna blow this popsicle stand so the the first (laughs) job opportunity (laughs) I got to lead and don't get me wrong I call it my little itty bitty city by the water because it's one Mm -hmm. of the most beautiful places in the world like northern California is stunning and so it's one of the most beautiful places in the world but it just like even if you go there today it hasn't changed much from when I graduated high school. It's kind of like stuck in a like a little zone there. And so right outside of Stanford and Silicon Valley, that yeah. area does feel kind of stuck in time. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. And so I just knew that there had to be something bigger and better out there. And so, you know, I worked for Jay for a couple of years and then while I was with Jay I met a guy named Dwayne Meadows. He was a manager of a lot of hip-hop, early 80s rap hip-hop groups. He gave me an opportunity to be his assistant, and I moved to Los Angeles. I went to stay with my Auntie Maggie, who was the one that worked for Sammy Davis. So I went to uh, L.A., and I made the leap, and uh, I worked with Dwayne. He managed Rodney Ojo Cooley, and I met Egyptian Lover, and uh, ended up working with their company, West Coast Record Distributors, and they had, like, J.J. Fad and L.A. Dream Team, like a world-class wrecking crew, whole, a lot of early, just really kind of uh, groundbreaking uh, hip-hop on the West Coast. And then I started my career trajectory as a music publisher. In 1990, um, I was given an opportunity by uh, Pat Lucas and Jody Gerson at EMI SBK Music to run the studio. And I just kind of worked my way up you know, as a music publisher from, from, from the bottom. So I started with the song and I learned contract administration. And then, you know, I moved on to be a creative director and being able to acquisition catalogs. And so I did that with Tom Sturgis at Chrysalis Music. I worked with L.A. Reed um, after Chrysalis. I moved to Atlanta in 1996 because at Chrysalis I had signed Outcast and uh, Goody Mob and uh, Roy Ayers and uh, Montel Jordan, lots of great groups because they wanted to start, you know, an urban monster. Evan Meadow and Ellie Reed wanted to know who signed Outcasts out from up under their nose. And they offered me a job to come open a music publishing company with LA 
in Atlanta. So I moved to Atlanta the first time in 1996 and started Hitco Music out of my apartment. Wait, did you just did you just blow through? Did you just blow through the idea that did you sign Outcast? Yes, I represented their copyrights, and so I helped them as a music publisher. You know, your job is to exploit the songs, protect the songs, do administration for the songs, and and really just just look after the the intellectual property uh, of the songwriter, right? And so, and were so, they were they who brought you to Atlanta? They, what was the, yes, they 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 brought me to Atlanta. So first, it was Outcast. So I had a, a cousin that lived here. Um, her name was Danielle. She she got the L.A. LaFace Records Christmas CD. I was in Los Angeles at the time. She sent the CD to me, and she said, "Cousin, you gotta listen to this because this is great." And I listened. They had the song "Players Ball" on there. And what I loved about "Players Ball" was that it was melodic because at the time in hip hop there were a lot of what they call loops. You know, they were just sampling loops. But on this record, there was uh, real musicianship, real instruments. Like you could actually hear the wind on tape, right? And so. I thought this is refreshing, and then lyrically, what they were saying was, was amazing, and and it had melody to it. So they brought in the you know the singing hooks, and it was just I love these guys. And so I flew to Atlanta, met with a guy named uh, Ian Burke, who introduced me to Rico Wade of Organized Noise. He was their producer. Uh, they introduced me to Antoine and Andre. Uh, well, mm-hmm. big boy in Andre 3000, and they uh-huh. hadn't even graduated high school yet, so they were like really young. <laughs> and so, prodigies, um, though, would, prodigies, but total prodigies. And so, I would actually go to the, you know, the original dungeon up under Rico's house with the red clay and listen to music. And I am this publisher at this company in LA. I'm coming to Atlanta and I'm going down in up under someone's house with red dirt. So it was a whole kind of like amazing, you know, time and experience. And I would be the only woman surrounded by all these guys listening to this music and ended up signing Outcast and, and looking after their copyrights and, and hooking them up with John Singleton to do the higher learning soundtrack and so many different opportunities at the time. I was there when they did their first show uh, in New York and when they performed at the Source Awards. And so it was just, you know, amazing. And then that led to signing the Goody Mob, where I worked with Bernard Parks and Kasim Reed because he was the attorney for Goody Mob at the time. And so I did that uh, in Atlanta. Here we became the largest major independent publisher in the Southeast because, you know, we had signed Destiny's Child and Anthony Dent and Ezekiel Lewis and a kid named Raphael Brown who wrote In My Bed for Drew Hill. Like, it was just just an amazing time. We started in 1997, and that ran till about uh, 2000 for me. Think about this. So the dynamism of Atlanta is something yeah. that people who aren't from Atlanta or who haven't lived in Atlanta don't really understand. I have teams in London, LA, we do a lot of business mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. We're all, you know, all over the other big uh, international English speaking cities. And mm-hmm. most of these people have no concept of like the dynamism of, of Atlanta. Share with the people listening mm-hmm. some of the things that make Atlanta so special in this regard, like, you know, the hip hop scene, the energy the um, the vortex of creativity that actually exists here. 
I remember my my first trip uh, coming to Atlanta to uh, meet the group Outcast, and so I just felt an energy when I got off the plane. It just smelled so good, like you know, with all the trees and everything. It was just beautiful, right? And then so I get into the city, you know. At this time, you know, I'm going from studio to studio to studio, kind of just meeting writers, uh, finding out what's happening on the scene. And one of the, the most amazing things that I realized is that they all know each other. It's like, you know, they went to high school together or my grandma is his grandma's sister or it's a very family kind of, uh, especially around the hip hop scene at the time. And what I noticed is that they have like a lots of different camps, all this new creativity bubbling. But I also noticed that you had a lot of people beginning to come in from the region, because LaFace Records had started here, right? And that's who signed uh, Outcast to their record label. So you had uh, two giant talent magnets in the music scene, and, and they were huge. So for LA and Babyface to start their company in Atlanta, right? That was a big deal. They were the biggest producers at the time. And for them to come here, that said a lot about Atlanta, right? And so uh -huh. now you have the talent magnets here. So now a whole universe begins to move around them. They're just attracting people from the region and from all over. And now they're strong enough to bring in artists from L.A. and New York and overseas that they're working with into the city of Atlanta. And then once you get here, you realize that, wow, I can create and live and do the things that I love and live well doing that. <laughs> Mm. You know, that was the big thing. So, you know, by this time they had the Lenox Mall, that's Plaza, and it was studios everywhere. It just became... Well, such a high quality of life. It's, it's yeah. hard for people from L.A., New York to understand the yeah. high quality yeah. of life that is Atlanta. Absolutely. And I am raised California. I lived in Los Angeles for a very long time. And for... Me too, yeah. To, you know, to be able to come here... And my lifestyle translates, right? Because there are a lot of things that, you know, a lot of my friends from L.A. and even myself were a little high maintenance. So, you know, restaurants and shopping and, you know, living and all of that is important, right? And I yep. found that here. What I also just loved about it, it was a what I felt a new city because historically they, they had burned Atlanta down. They had to build everything back up. And so everything looks relatively new here. Right. Mm -hmm. And to me, it felt good. It had the things that I needed to sustain in terms of my lifestyle. And I got a, a big bang for my buck. So you begin to bring all your friends in. And so it just really kind of spread. And so that was the energy coming from Atlanta. And they were hit records. Right. It was worldwide hit records with TLC and Tony Braxton and just everything that Dallas Austin was doing and what Jermaine Dupree was doing in this small area. Because, you because you know, Atlanta is 600,000 people. The metro is bigger, but that is about 600,000 people proper. Right. So different from L.A. So in this small area, you had juggernaut writer, producer, artist. Everyone was working with each other. And it just began to leave Atlanta. You had arteries coming here, like Sony Music. You had Atlantic Records here. There were a lot of outside income streams coming into Atlanta, moving out the creative intellectual product that was coming from here. 
there's an openness energy here that mm-hmm. reminds me and feels like the West Coast in the sense mm-hmm. that the West Coast has been accustomed for generations to people moving to the West Coast, right? So mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for, from the very beginning when the West was a gold rush, you know, you've had these waves of people trying to make new lives on the West Coast. No different than you mm-hmm. had on the East Coast when, you know, all the, right. when all the original European settlers were coming in. But mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. now been more generations on the East Coast. So the West Coast has been mm-hmm. the place where people go. Atlanta retains mm-hmm. this kind of West Coast frontier feeling, I, I feel, I experience, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. of openness to outsiders, not necessarily mm-hmm. always culturally, because there is a Southern mm-hmm. culture mm-hmm. that is very hospitable, but isn't always mm-hmm. easy to break into. But there is right. an openness about Atlanta itself, mm-hmm. that is, because mm-hmm. Atlanta is so accustomed to having so many people move from all over the place to come and make Atlanta mm-hmm. a home. It has this kind mm-hmm. of international, multicultural melting pot feel that I think yes. just creates a, an energy that is unlike most other places in the world, uh, mm-hmm. just don't have this level of melting pot. They don't. And that's what our Beltline is. Our Beltline is built on the rail system. Right. So it's mm-hmm. always been a transitory kind of place. You always came through Atlanta or you're flying through Atlanta or somehow there, Atlanta was always a stop, right? Once you get here, because one of the things, you know, I know a lot of people from the East and the West Coast, when they come here, they're like, it has so much potential and I can do this. And then the ideas just get going and then they start their business or, or whatever their, their endeavor is. And they end up here and they end up loving it. I mean, it's just once you get here, it's, it's a, <laughs> in a strange way. It's just like, it's always like, welcome home. It's like, you feel like you're coming home. No, I, I agree with that. I'm a West Coast kid. And when I got out to Atlanta, I just started to feel like, wow, this is an amazing life. But we don't have anything like this uh, on the West Coast. It is. We have beautiful, amazing things. If we had water, it would be just. (laughs) It wouldn't even be fair. We'd have the the population of New York. (laughs) But then if we had water, we might not have the same uh, quality of life for exactly the one of exactly. the things that makes Atlanta so magical is that you get all of the 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 benefits of a major metropolitan area and all the benefits of really dynamic interesting people and then life feels free if you're from LA or New York right exactly and it was always in living here if I made LA and New York money I live in Atlanta I live in Atlanta and I make LA and New York money that's that's what that was the thing for me <laughs> Well, then you live like a queen. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I joke all the time. I said, I, I, you know, I, I lived in L.A. and I felt like a perfectly lovely uh, middle class guy cruising through life. I moved to Atlanta. I felt like I was living like a billionaire. Right, exactly. You know? And that's what's been happening in our, you know, on the film side of things, right? Because music people, they get it. So you have like artists and producers that live here quietly, like you have no idea. But on on the movie side, right, that's, I think, that's what happens. They come here to work, and then they realize, like, oh, my goodness, like, I could do this for half the price. Right. <laughs> and, 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 not, and, and I'm not talking about your, just your above-the-line folks. I'm talking about your below-the-line folks who, who then begin to live like they're above the line, Right. 
That, well, um, that's and, a, that has really been the magic, right? That's been the yeah. magic of Atlanta from a crew base standpoint. Is yes. that, and, and I've talked about this before, but, you know, there's really only six cities of consequence in the English-speaking mm-hmm. world when it comes to filmmaking mm-hmm. and television. And it's really L.A., mm-hmm. New York, and Atlanta in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And you have mm-hmm. London in the U.K., mm-hmm. and you have Toronto, mm-hmm. Vancouver, and Canada. Yeah. And that's it. Everything else is that's kind it. of an asterisk afterthought, you know, like there's something mm-hmm. happening here or there, whatever. But those aren't the major cities. So the major cities mm-hmm. for manufacturing are the six mm-hmm. I listed. Of those six, there's only one place that if you were a crew member, your life is amazing. And that's Atlanta. That's because Atlanta. you make the same money, right? You make the yeah. same money. It's all union wages. It's all set by the yeah. union pay scale. So you make the yeah. same money in L.A. You make the same money in New York. You make the same money in London, not because it's the union pay scale, but because London basically mm-hmm. adopted the union pay scale um, wages. You know, right? it's not mm-hmm. unionized. But, mm-hmm. And the same is true in Canada. And so all mm-hmm. these wages are, are, are international, and you bring right. that money to Atlanta, and suddenly it goes <laughs> so much farther. It goes so much farther, right? Uh, uh, and, yeah. and, and I never thought, like, really, I, I am a part of a community here. Like, I, I know my mayor. I know my police chief. I, you know, I, I have relationships with all of, like, your health people and just everything. And it's just like a real community. I, that was the thing I kind of missed in, in L.A. It's like you go to the, to the person that everyone's going to, and it's not necessarily I, – I really just didn't feel community when I lived in Los Angeles. I felt like I was there to do work, and that was it. But I didn't, I didn't have the total quality of life package, and that's what I have here. And that's why I love it in Atlanta because well, I, I have a sense of community here. Right. Well, let's talk about that community. You now have a company. It's called entertainment.gov, correct? Yes, yes. Talk a little bit about what you do to help the government entities best know how to live with the entertainment community. Okay, well, I'm going to back up a little bit and tell you how I even ended up from music into this side of the world. I was working with, uh, in 2006, I did all the music publishing thing, blah, blah, 2006, I was working with Jamie Foxx. You know, I worked across all of his different careers. So that was music, film, television, radio, concert touring, and promotion, stand-up, all of that. That's where I began to really understand film and television. And I tried to sign Jamie as a writer back in the 90s. So I just kept a relationship with him and his team. After he won the Oscar, they wanted to launch a full-service management company. I eventually worked with uh, like Layla Hathaway and Ronald Isley, and it was really taking their brands across all the different mediums, right? Really just expanding who they were outside of just their talent. And so I introduced Jamie to Kasim Reed, who was running for mayor at the time. And Jamie came down and did a fundraiser for Kasim, and Kasim won. And we did a whole drive on Fox Hall Radio, the whole thing. So he ended up winning. So Kasim, I talked to him, and I reached out to him, and I said, I want to do a little something different. He said, are you ready to come back home? Remember, we talked about that, welcome home. Mm-hmm. I was in mm-hmm. L.A. He said, are you ready to come back home? And I said, yes, but I want to learn something new. So he gave me an opportunity over a year and a half time period to learn how to become a film commissioner and become the first film commissioner for the city of Atlanta. So mm. I came in and I worked with the industry stakeholders here. 
Lee Thomas and Norm Bielowitz and Mike Smith and Mike Riley and Mike Aikens, all those guys, I work with them around crafting an ordinance for the film business and how movies engage with the city of Atlanta that was facilitatory and not regulatory. So in order to do that, I had to do recon on what LA did around the movie business, New York, London, Chicago, just the best practices for these different cities. The ordinance was voted on in 2013. The office opened up and the first goal was to streamline the permitting process, right? Because you have to realize that the Entertainment Investment Act passed in 2008 and the city became, you know, when Kasim took office, he was inundated with all these different requests and he needed a solution quickly. And so when the office opened up, it became the one-stop shop for all the requests for everything from filming at the airport to wanting to cut off leaves from a tree or moving trees. For instance, Ant-Man wanted to move trees. We process all of those different requests, work with all the different interagencies. In my research, I met a guy named Greg Schwanzel, who had an app that he worked with a gentleman in London, Andy Pavord. And Andy had created this online cloud-based film permitting system that allowed um, that 98% of the, the provinces in the UK are on, right? To move around filming on the street and to do it seamlessly and to work with their police and fire and, um, well, here in the US, Homeland Security and all those different offices or agencies that need to be involved, public works and closing streets and things like that. So that app we brought into the city of Atlanta. It was the first city in the US to launch it. And it revolutionized the permitting process. It made it so much easier. And it changed the size of movie that began to move around the city. The first big movie we did, Fast 7, Fast and Furious 7, on film app. And it had the largest footprint that uh, crew and that production had the largest footprint over the city during that time. You must know Eric Hogue. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I met with Eric before the uh-huh. office even opened um, because because he was thinking about bringing the movie to Georgia. And um, Lee Thomas wanted uh, Eric and I to meet. And so Eric was like, well, you know, I'm concerned that, you know, to bring this here, can you guys really get it done? I'm like, we got you. We can get it done. We'll make it happen. If this is what we need, this is what we want. Eric and I work really closely. He was one of the first big movie people that I really worked with and cut my teeth on how, how to move productions around on the streets and deal with the community and the industry and government and how they all need to work together. Well, and he, you know, so, and he yeah. loved it so much that then, you know, he brought Fast 8 as well. <laughs> yes, and then, yes, absolutely. Right? <laughs> and then after that, you know, Eric now is our head of production at Black Hall, so he oversees everything relative yes. to our dealings with all the production companies. Eric and I, we always joke, he is like, in his mind, he's the king of logistics. He can move around so many things at once, and just, I'm just like, oh my gosh, Eric, you're working on this, and you're doing this, and especially when you work in locations, you're working on so many different things and different deals and dealing with different community members in different cities, you know, it's just a lot. And well, he's got the he's, mind for he's it, a master right? at it. it. Yes, he does. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people don't have the kind of minds that they can juggle many ideas and things and processes at, at one time. And 
Eric definitely has the kind of strong mind to be able to uh, manage all of those disparate things and bring them together in a synergy that uh, is beautiful. He he does that all the time at Black Hall as well, and it's um, it's it's one of the ways or one, you know one of the important reasons why we've had so much success. Yeah, and, and he knows everybody. He's because he's yeah. great. He does. He is great at his job, right? Mm-hmm. So, great. I, I totally get it. And so, at the mayor's office of film and entertainment, we launched it. Um, worked on over probably 150 movies. Streamlined the process and put in new standard operating procedures for how movies move around the city. And transitioning out of that. And once I really, you know, learned it and mastered it, I started Georgia's first, uh, in 2016, Georgia's first film permit facilitation company, right, called Film City. And I did that for about two years, and it was great. Ended up, uh, I worked on uh, great movies like I, Tanya and Uncle Drew and Spider-Man, and, and I worked with Marvel and Sony and Warner Brothers, lots of, you know, uh, Den of Thieves, lots of big productions. But I decided that I wanted to focus more on uh, consulting in terms of establishing, you know, an economic development policy uh, for different cities uh, around film and entertainment. So I sold Film City, and then I launched Entertainment.gov. And so that's what I do. I go into cities, and I show them how to not only attract movies to their municipality or county, but um, how to engage with the community, how to, how to make sure that you have the right policy. Because when you think about it, the state tax incentive gives the movie industry productions. I'll just give you the example, money to buy water. And when they go into these cities, the cities have to be set up to sell them water, right? Because that's how they benefit. Hmm. And so right. that's what I do. I help them put together an infrastructure so that they can sell them water when they come into their cities because mm-hmm. everything has to be done through a policy, through council, legislatively. They want to make sure that they have a policy in place so that when they're impacted, their communities benefit from their parks to their you know, public works to their police officers. All of that needs a structure. I love that. We, you know, we're, we're running out of time. Share with everybody who's listening how they can get in touch with you. Do you have social media outlets? Yes. What, what are the yes, best ways yes. to reach out and follow what you're doing and, and or connect with you? You can reach me on Instagram at Suddenly It Happened, on Twitter at LaRonda Sutton. And um, you can email me, LaRonda at entertainmentgob.com. I love it. Well, LaRonda, thank you for <laughs> taking the time during the quarantine to jump on the phone and and do a virtual podcast with us. Let's do it again when we get, get together in person. I, I'm, I'm loving this conversation. Absolutely. 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 Have a great Thank day. You, Enjoy so yourself. Much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You too. I'll leave you guys with thoughts, which are reflections that I write on Instagram. No, I will not do a video conference with you. I haven't showered in three days. Have a conference call like civilized adults. I'm Social Distancing in Social Circle, Georgia. This has been the Black Hall Studios podcast, recording from quarantine in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Ryan Millsap, Chairman and CEO. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. 
Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsat. <laughs>